Hello and welcome to Economic Central. This week I have DJ. Hello. And also we had the exciting experience of interviewing Gigi Foster again, very, very didn't good. we, DJ? Very good. So here we go, year 11s and 12s. This is something for you to listen to before you come back to school. Things for you to consider to get yourself back into the economic zone. That's it. Yeah. So listen and enjoy. Um, I'm going to get started, Gigi, with some questions about sort of cost-benefit analysis, opportunity costs, getting right back to basics in economics, because it's something that we we often sort of lose sight of. So the first question to you is, why are all decisions that we make economic decisions? Well, I'm biased, Rianne, but uh, I believe that every decision is economic because every resource is scarce. Yeah. And what that means is that nothing, whether you're talking about time, money, mental energy, focus, anything grows on trees. It's all something that we have to recognize has limits. And therefore, because there is a limited amount of every resource, every decision we make is inevitably a zero sum game in some yeah. sense. When we are choosing for something, we're choosing against something else in terms of attention, in terms of time, in terms of money, in terms of anything. Now, if, if resources grew on trees, and we lived forever and had you know just infinite amounts of energy then it wouldn't be that zero-sum game with every decision we make but but because of scarcity it just is and so i've, I've lived like that ever since i was a child this is one of the reasons why when i first uh was exposed to economics as a discipline i felt like i was just falling in love with you know immediately with this uh this way of thinking which was codifying the way i already lived basically right which is how do we get the best whatever however you define best how do we get the best for everybody, given the scarce resources we have? Um, and and that, that is the economic question in my mind, the, the most fundamental one. And, and that works at the micro level and that works at the macro level in terms of how we organize societies as a whole. So uh, so that's my answer. I'm sure that you know other no, people would probably say that there are other things going on in every decision, and I'm sure there are, but there is certainly economics in every decision in every as well. Thing. Absolutely. Which leads on to the next question, which is why do decisions then always involve a trade-off or an opportunity cost? Well, it's exactly that scarcity again. So opportunity cost is, is kind of a misnomer, right? A lot of students struggle with the concept because it's really not a cost in the sense of when you're calculating it or when you're thinking about it, what you should have in mind is what benefit did I give up by doing this thing that I chose to do? So, you know, if I decide to use an evening, let's say, to, to go out with my son to see a movie, well, in lockdown now, but if I could, then what am I giving up? Well, I'm I'm giving up the opportunity to uh, go out to see a play with my daughter, let's say, right? And so that's that benefit is is the thing you've sacrificed, and it's the thing you should think about when making the decision initially to go out to see the movie with the son, right? And so, for example, I might choose to spend more time with my son now because he's about to go back to Boston, and I won't see him for how no who knows how long. Whereas my daughter's here, and that might be a reason why I choose to do that thing with him. But it's not that I'm just unaware or oblivious to those costs, right? The things that I'm giving up, you know, you have to, if you're going to make conscious choices, uh, consciously, uh, you know, putting your priorities on the table every time you make a choice, yeah. which is your own mind, then you need to be aware of those opportunity costs. Now, regardless of whether you're consciously aware, you are making a choice every time yeah. right, about, about giving up things. Yeah. And so really you, your time expenditure, just like your money expenditure and your mental expenditure betrays your true priorities. Mm. And if you're not aware of those priorities, well then get educated in economics. Uh, but those priorities are always able to be deduced from the way you actually spend your resources. Yeah, I would agree. 
Now, a lot of our students have heard this term, a cost-benefit analysis. It's sort of banded around a bit, and some of our students are aware of it. Can you explain what it is and how econ economists use it? Sure. So a cost-benefit analysis is just basically uh, an evaluation of whether or not you should do something. <laughs> um, and that's the basic way to explain it. And the evaluation is based on what you think you're going to get and how much you think it's going to cost you. So when you're thinking about any policy at a government level, can be the, the federal government or a state government, even a local council, um, that, that level of government, typically, at least in pre-COVID times, and hopefully in post-COVID times as well, will evaluate a particular projected course of action. So they have a, a policy they're thinking about implementing, let's say, or an investment project they're thinking about uh, undertaking, when it may be infrastructure or some other thing. And they have to project what are the benefits going to be if we do this project and what are the costs going to be. And if the costs exceed the benefits, <laughs> then it kind of looks dumb from an investment perspective, right? And if the benefits exceed the costs, then the opposite. And so, you know, from that point of view, you find uh, that a lot of cost benefit analyses will deliver a, a thumbs up on many investments like education, for example, and healthcare yeah. and, uh, and, and good quality roads and things like this, because the projected benefits of those things are very large and not just in terms of getting individual returns from them. So when you get an education, you're not just getting higher wages yourself, but also social returns. So the whole society benefits when people are more educated and able to participate more effectively and more astutely in civic yeah. affairs. Uh, which, by the way, we've seen uh, not as much during this period of as I would have liked to have seen. Mm. Um, and so, so on that basis, also our infrastructure projects uh, decided upon, right? So you can say, well, we think that you know the light rail in Sydney is going to deliver more benefits than costs. Now, of course, whenever you're doing this, you have to make estimates because you know inevitably the world is not certain. Economics is not a backward-looking science. We have to make calls on policy now that yeah. will affect tomorrow and yeah. then the day after that and the, and the generation after that and so we have to be prepared to make judgment calls and estimates and this is one of the things that during some some a very uncertain time like the covid pandemic period a lot of people have been unwilling yeah. to do because you know th there's just so much uncertainty people kind of feel out of their depth in making predictions about costs and benefits they just yeah. don't know and so i think that is part of what's fed into the reluctance to really do a proper cost benefit accounting of a lot of the draconian policies we've seen mm. now we we are and as you have said in very uncertain times and, and very well, interesting i'll i'll say at <laughs> points of time at the moment and we have witnessed a number of lockdown as they're being referred to or stay at home policies by a variety of governments around the world and and also here in australia now what are the economic reasons for locking down or hibernating parts of our economy um well, so to answer that, I really have to talk about what the justification was at the time, um, because the justification was not economic. I really can't give you an economic uh, reason that doesn't have to do with directly the specific thing that was talked about at the time, which is saving lives, quote unquote. And I will say lives are about economics. They're, they're very much intertwined, and yeah. we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But so there is a portion of economics, which is about, uh, you know, what are the costs and benefits to people with respect to COVID? That's a very small portion of the overall picture that economics would look at when, when deciding on a policy to, to approach COVID or anything else, in fact. 
Um, but there is that, so that's there. And the justification used was that if we lock people down, then they won't spread this virus as much to each other, and therefore they won't supposedly get sick as much and, and die as much and yada yada. Now there's a kind of basic um, a priori logic to that. If you don't see as many people, you're not going to be passing it as much. And so people kind of went along with that logic. Um, but notably, before March 2020, we did have plans in place to deal with pandemics, which did not call for locking down. There were some social distancing, you know, uh, thoughts about, you know, well, maybe if it's bad enough, then we should social distance, maybe wear a mask occasionally. But this, this kind of draconian locking down of whole states of populations or whole metropolitan areas really was never part of any pre-pandemic uh, pandemic management plan. And that all, you know, that, that sort of uh, hesitancy to lock down just totally went out the window in March 2020. And so, uh, again, when I tried to evaluate the costs and benefits of the lockdown policies for the Victorian Parliament back in August of 2020, um, I, I had to guess, as you always do with the cost benefit analysis, yeah. I had to guess what the benefits were going to be of these lockdowns. And I really had to just make up a number because there, there wasn't any evidence, uh, scientific evidence, published or otherwise even, that said that these would actually work. And, and there are many reasons for that. I'll just go through a little bit of, of why. Our societies today are incredibly interdependent with people trading with each other on all sorts of different markets all the time for their basic existence. We simply don't have microcosmic self-sufficient units of families anymore, right? We, we used to have hunter-gatherer groups, and in those sort of situations, you could imagine having a totally isolated group, right, of 20 to 50 people. But, you know, now people have to go to the grocery store, people have to go to, you know, to get repair work done, they have to have um, carers come in if, they, if they're living alone and they need help. There are things we just need to do in order to keep living that involve contact with others. And you know, you can say, well, wear masks, and that's fine, but masks, you know, some people can might say that that a mask is to a virus what a what a garden gate is to a mosquito. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're still going to have some passage of the virus, right? So in some sense, it was the always, environmental cost of masks, but we won't get into that. Well, yeah. exactly. I, I mean, my goodness, the amount of, of, of waste we have produced during it's this crazy. period. The masks and the PPE of all sorts, right? And just all the hand sanitizer and the bottles of the hand sanitizer. My goodness, anybody who cares about the environment and local, you know, cleanliness of the of the, of the you know air and the water. I mean, good heavens, it's been a horrible time, right? Um, and this again, this just gets completely overlooked because people are so narrowly focused on this one portion of the economic picture. The economic picture includes everything. This is one of the things that defines us as a discipline. We think about all of the yeah, all of the different benefits in all the dimensions of our society. Yeah, uh, so, so yeah, clearly from your perspective, there doesn't appear to be economic reasons for the lockdown. However, there, there are people that agree with that approach and they believe it to be the right uh, thing for us to do. What do you think are the economic consequences of the lockdown? Well, there are just enormous consequences. Um, and, I, and I won't say that there's no benefit at all from locking down. Potentially, you do slow the spread of the virus. And so in order to prepare your health system, if you really think there's going to be a bad pandemic, you might want to uh, briefly limit people's interactions with each other so that the health system can prepare. 
Um, but I, I, I'm not sure that even COVID would have justified the, you know, a particularly long period of that or even any period of that in Australia, particularly considering that we had our international borders closed uh, very early on, in fact. And so we never really got that much of a hit of the virus here in the first place. So anyway, but that's another story. In terms of the cost, my goodness, I mean, where do I start? So I did, I did enumerate um, many of the costs in the cost-benefit analysis draft that I wrote for the Victorian Parliament back in August. And you can think about them in terms of, uh, you know, dimensions of life or in terms of chronology. Uh, we might start with the chronology. So short-run costs. Well, first of all, if you are locked up in your home, then you are not able to see other people. You're not able to interact with other people as much as you did before. You're also uh, experiencing constraints on your exercise. Uh, you're also probably a bit stressed and anxious, which may make you eat worse, uh, you know, have a worse diet um, and maybe do some other things that are not as good for you. You get into bad habits. If you're not going to work every day, you're just getting a, a government handout. You sort of lose a bit of your work ethic, a bit of your motivation to get up. You may have depression and, and things like this start to crop up more. Um, you also trap children in households where, I mean, not all households are, are functional and happy. So no. some of them will be exposed to more domestic violence situations. And same thing for, you know, women and even men who, usually in normal times would use their work and their social engagements to escape negative domestic situations, but they no longer have that escape. So, so all those kinds of costs, which really have to do with interruptions to the normal social uh, interactions of people, will, will show up in human well-being losses. And it, economics cares about this. This is, in yep. fact, arguably the, the main maximand of all of economics is human well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this can be measured uh, in a number of ways. One of the newest ways that has been just coincidentally was just before the pandemic introduced to the world by my colleague and co-author Paul Friders at the LSE is the well-be, the well-being year, which yep. essentially takes answers to the question overall, how satisfied are you with your life? And that's answered on a you know zero to ten scale of satisfaction. And one well be is one unit increment on that satisfaction scale. So if you you know usually answer let's say a seven, but during pandemic you answer only a six point five, then you've lost you know 0.5 of a well be during that year of the time that you were having that experience. So uh, what's happened on that scale has been catastrophic for human well-being. And we know this now from data collected in the UK as well as here in Australia um, and increasingly in other places in the world that ask this kind of overall satisfaction question because it's a, it's a very common one now in social yeah. surveys. Um, and immediately, just on that basis alone, this is short-run costs just in terms of well-being, lockdowns don't make sense because you can, of course, then take that, those costs and compare them to the potential benefits, quote unquote, of locking down, which might be some slowing of kind of the inevitable because we're gonna have to live with the virus anyway. So maybe you get a bit of discounted, you know, you're pushing the deaths a little further out. So you benefit a bit from this. Um, but there's just, even if you assume that lockdowns would have saved 10,000 lives, which I did when I did this analysis for Victoria, you still find that hands down, they don't, they're not valuable. They're not actually giving more benefits than they cost, right. just in terms of those, uh, of those well-being costs. Now, then you also have this issue that in the way we've handled the pandemic, um, government has come in on its white horse and, and provided income support. And I was a big supporter, actually, of the JobKeeper program when it first came on because I thought, well, good, at least we can, uh, you know, keep sort of the, the employers and the employees together for a little yeah. while so we don't yeah. just, you know, yeah. break up those links and then cause everybody to have to find new jobs and new employees yeah. down the track, which we know is a very costly search process. Yeah. Um, but it lasted for months and months and months and months and months and months and months, right? And so we accumulated this amazing amount of debt. Yeah. And that then also has long run consequences, which we'll, we'll talk about later. Um, 
there's, there's a number of other kinds of consequences. One, I just might, well, two I might mention. One is taking kids out of school. When you disrupt education, you are depressing the human capital of a generation. And so we all, we're going to have less capable doctors, lawyers, bricklayers, you know, in any occupation you care to name. Um, and these are kids who, you know, won't be able to get that time back somehow, you know, down the track. You can't make it up because whatever resources you use to make it up are being taken from something else, right? So again, there's this opportunity cost aspect. You just can't, you know, somehow switch, a, 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 you know, a switch on and then say, oh, well, everything's now fine. It's back to normal. No, you've, you've got a permanent hit to human capital development. Um, and also the final thing I'll mention just briefly in terms of short and medium run costs is crowded out healthcare. So people who say that these are public health policies are, are just lying because in fact, public health encompasses much more than just COVID. It encompasses you know, the things that mainly kill us, for example, like, like stroke and heart disease, cancers, um, diabetes is a biggie and, and a lot of other you know, diseases that we haven't heard about hardly at all during this period, because all we hear about in relation to health is COVID. Um, some of the, the pro-lockdown champions have said, well, there's no flu this season. And yeah, okay, so flu has also been stopped in its tracks a bit by these lockdown policies, fine. But we usually do lose, you know, couple thousand people to flu or you know a bad flu year uh but that again that's just you know not something that we've we've heard much about in terms yeah. of protection of total health so because people haven't been going to their cancer screenings because they haven't been doing their regular you know dental appointments and stress and the the co-optation of the health system for covid rather than anything else we're going to see more deaths from other things and we already have started to see this with cancer and diabetes and uh, dementia deaths going mm -hmm. up um, again, for two obvious reasons, the cancer screenings are being missed and some of the treatments are being missed and dementia goes up when you um, deprive elderly people who are suffering from that disease from social contact. And I know this because my mother had dementia um, and was actually neglected by her husband, not my father. Uh, and that neglect significantly accelerated her decline. And so, you know, we're seeing the effects of these things already. Mm, I'd agree. Mm, mm. Um, now, it's often argued, well, it has been argued during this period, that health is more important than the economy. You, you hear it banded around a lot. Um, can you explain what the long-term implications are for health and the standard of living from a less prosperous economy? Absolutely. So, so this health versus economy trade-off is simply erroneous. It is, there, there is not such a trade-off. What we are always trading off with any decision is lives on one hand versus lives on the other. Well-being on one hand versus well-being on the other. And so health is one of the things that we protect with our economic resources. We protect it, we privilege it, we invest in it. And when we, when we stab ourselves in the stomach by hampering our economy's ability to provide the resources that we normally do to invest in health and health protection and, and health you know, problem prevention and everything else, then we are directly hurting the health of our population now and in the future. Mm -hmm. So when governments spend in developing countries, sorry, developed countries like Australia, they, they add years to people's lives, they add quality to people's lives through the fact that they are spending on things like research and development for, you know, the combating of diseases and on hospital care and, you know, other kinds of treatments and everything that we spend on as a, as a country. Now, when you don't spend as much on it, then you're not going to get as much of a return. 
Uh, and so again, that's something that we will only see the effects of over time as our expenditure choices today come back to bite us in another you know, five, 10, 20 years, right? This is just, and we don't, we don't hear about those kinds of expenditures much on the front page every day. Certainly pre-COVID, most people wouldn't even be aware that that was happening because they're, you know, they're, they're lucky enough to just be able to take it for granted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But we we can't take it for granted because that's not what we've been doing during this period. We've been focusing rapidly on one illness, which is not by any stretch of the imagination, the worst illness, you know, to, to face humanity. And in the vast majority of cases, our natural immunity and, and capacity to fight off bugs will protect us from this bug. Now, government debt um, is something that uh, I am interested and actually increasingly concerned about. Now, we've increased our, our debt here in Australia, and, and most governments around the world have, uh, significantly. I think the spent expenditure last year was up by 10% of GDP that we injected into the economy. Can you explain to our students what are the possible implications of increasing government debt significantly? Because there seems to be sort of a feeling at the moment that you, you, it's cheap to borrow, is a term that's banded around. It's cheap to borrow, yep. so just keep borrowing. But can you explain what the implications of that can be? So, so let me first take the position of, uh, of somebody we might call in the uh, modern monetary theory camp. <clears throat> so this is a, a common phrase that's used to refer to someone who basically thinks that uh, no longer is there a real limit on how much a currency issuing government can spend. Um, because there's no real need for there to be a, a, an income equals expenditure kind of accounting as there is in a, in a household, right? So in a household, you have income, and if you exceed your income with your expenditures, you go into debt, and then you have problems because you got interest, you got to pay back, and you know, and you can't just magically whip out your pen and create more money to pay your creditors, right? Yeah. But the Australian government can do that. It can magically whip out its pen, basically, or the RBA could just buy bonds and, and thereby inject a huge quantity of currency into the hands of Australians. Um, and, and that kind of potential does mean that there isn't an exact accounting, there's not an exact ledger keeping that must happen every, every year. And we know this anyway, because you know, governments usually don't you know, hit the nail right on the head. They usually have a bit of a surplus or a bit of a deficit in any given year, right? And so we kind of already know that. Uh, but the question is then, well, if you just keep spending, if you just keep running you know, deficit upon deficit upon deficit, will everything just turn out okay, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the implication, right? Um, and I would, I would point back to, you know, some of the examples, and I, I don't want to be, you know, scaring people, but if you, if you get a situation where the government tries to just run the printing presses in order to get itself out of Dodge in terms of its debt, you, you, you can run into problems. And, and South American countries definitely ran into problems in the past. And your, your students, I'm sure, can look up what happened in, in some of those countries where basically you know, you, a, whole, a, a whole wheelbarrow full of currency was required to buy a stick of butter. Um, and so the main thing that you do start worrying about is that there's so much cash being injected into an economy that is not needing it enough. There's not enough economic activity, basically, to absorb all that extra cash that you start getting inflation pressure. And in fact, last year when I was on a call with um, George, uh, Guy DeBell from the RBA, I remember I asked a question about asking him whether he was worried at all about the possibility of stagflation. 
And stagflation is something that my parents lived through. Yeah. Uh, and so I used to hear about it around the dinner table when I was a little girl, right? And how bad it was in the 70s. Because yeah. uh, you just you know, had not enough economic activity going on. People were kind of, you know, just not, not using themselves or their machinery to capacity, basically. But nonetheless, you had this massive inflation. Um, and thank goodness my grandmother bought a few zero coupon bonds during that period with massive, you know, uh, returns. Yeah. And that's basically what put me through university. So thanks, wow. Grandma. Um, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, we'd never have been able, my parents would never have been able to afford to, to send me to Yale. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's great if you have a, a wise grandmother, but generally speaking, we don't want stagflation. Um, and because, you know, getting out of that situation is very difficult. And it basically was the Reagan tax cuts eventually that kind of kicked, kicked things into gear. That was in an environment in which tax rates were really, really punishing, like 90%, you know, marginal tax rates. We don't have that situation now. Um, right, we, we, we have maybe what 49% or something, I think it's the yeah. top tax bracket yeah, um, yeah. marginal rate. So, you know, you don't have as much capacity basically to bring those rates down. And so I, I worry about what would happen in the future if we have to, uh, you know, somehow escape from a stagflation kind of spiral. The other thing I would say is just even if you are a modern monetary theorist and you, you know, you dismiss the idea that there's an actual accounting equivalence that must happen at some stage or at some level between income and expenditure. It still is the case politically that if you have a massive amount of debt sitting around, you will need to service it and yeah. that will be more difficult to, to, to do without resources from other line items. Right. And so you would expect that there will be less expenditure on health, education, you know, services of all sorts, infrastructure, blah, 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 than there would otherwise have been simply because there's this debt you got to service. And for political reasons, you're not going to be able to do both because guess what? Again, resources are scarce. Yeah, correct. Which leads me on to my, my last uh, question, uh, which is about inflation and this sort of pent up demand, which is a term that's been banded around. Everything will be okay because there's pent up demand and <laughs> things will get back to normal. Um, I, I, I don't, necessarily adhere to that view and it, and it does bother me because people are their confidence is low business and households but also uh, we we've put all these restrictions in place which have, which have added an awful lot of costs to businesses do you think that that as well as the issue of the, the creating cash in the economy which is what the governments are up to or the central banks do you think this additional costs that we've imposed on business are going to start creeping in with higher prices too I think it's very possible. And the main reason, the main mechanism there is not just that you are passing on the cost of the restrictions to their customers, but also that the larger companies, which are the ones that are also more profitable and yeah. uh, basically we, that you can't escape because they tend to be more monopolistic or oligopolistic, mm -hmm. are better able to absorb the cost of these COVID restrictions than smaller companies. Correct. Indeed, you could and I do in my upcoming book, that the bigger companies have seen the COVID period as a massive windfall in terms of uh, just stepping on their competition. <laughs> because all of these restrictions that we've put in place have really bitten on the bottom line of the little guy, mm. not the bigger companies. And many of those bigger companies, by the way, are also operating in sectors that are uh, extremely favorable during COVID, like you know the internet and the, uh, the tech sector and you know, Amazon and whatever. So, so it's really been a time when we've seen an increased concentration uh, in different sectors of the economy. And that's almost always bad news for the consumer. <laughs> so almost always, when you reduce competition, you are going to punish the consumer as a result. 
And, and indeed, some of those consumers are also the business people who went belly up because, you know, they were the ones who copped the, the problems, you know, the restrictions. So it's been just a really dreadful time in terms of uh, both consumer welfare and the welfare of small businesses. And so, yes, in terms of pent up demand, I mean, I will say that one of the things that surprised me during this period is how little the official GDP figures have uh, I've really shown an effect of this. I mean, we've seen a, a little V shape, yeah. Yeah. like it's going back to normal, right? And I think there's mainly two reasons for this. So the first reason is that when you calculate GDP, you can calculate it either via the income method or via the expenditure method. Mm -hmm. And I expect that the backroom boys have been using the income method. Um, and of course, the governments have been supporting incomes. And so, you know, hey, presto, you'll see that everything's okay. But if you really looked at production, I think you'd probably see a different story. And the second really big factor is that, you know, when immigration was halted and tourism was halted, I initially thought, oh my gosh, we're going to see this, you know, crash in spending. But actually we didn't. And, I, and the reason is because not only did we halt tourism, but we halted the ability of Australians to go overseas, right? And spend yeah. their money in Canada. Time. Or, or Greece or something. And so it's the demand that we have had, we rich people, and I'll say rich, you know, I've had a, a, you know, an easy time financially, like, like anybody who's got a secure job during this period and investments, it's been great for me financially. I've continued to spend, maybe not at the rate that I would have otherwise, but I have continued to spend here locally. When the borders open, where is my pent up demand going to go? I'm going to Go to go to Florida. Go to go to Whoa, Paris. Right? Right. I'm going to go overseas, right? Um, so so Australia is going to lose those dollars, and right. and we're not helping ourselves much in terms of our international reputation. So right. I don't know whether we're going to get the tourists back and the international students who are looking at us, thinking, "Geez, are you going to do that to me again?" So. <laughs> You know, I'm worried that we're not going to, you know, and I'm sure politicians are as well, that yeah. we're not going to be able to kind of, you know, quickly change the ball to the other hand when we yeah. open the borders yeah. and have, you know, the, the payments go back to what they used to be. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know whether this pent up demand story is really uh, all it's cooked up to be. And I agree with you, too, about the, the uncertainty really putting a dampening uh, amount of, uh, you know, effect on both business confidence and consumer confidence. And that's not good for the, for the present and it's not good for the future because, again, investments now are what pay off later sure. if we're not making them we're not going to get the payoffs yeah. now just finally before you go Gigi because I know you're a very busy person I believe you have a book coming out that might be of interest to us what can, can you tell us what the book is and when we'll be able to get hold of it yes absolutely so thank you for asking Rand. so the book I'm very excited about this book it's a uh, a joint project of love with um Paul Friders my my co-author I mentioned before the inventor of the Welby and Michael Baker who is uh, an economist for the lay audience he's a, an economic consultant and a, a beautiful writer and it's called the great COVID panic mm -hmm. what happened why and what to do next um, and it's written to be accessible to the the lay audience on the street who has a critical mind and is already just sort of wondering what really is going on here, thinks something's rotten in Denmark, but doesn't, doesn't really understand the full story. We try to bring together multiple dimensions of the story and, mm -hmm. and tell it at the micro level, at the macro level, at the level of the individual person. We have initial, you know, actual stories from people who have lived through this period and also at the level of the abstract, you know, egg-heady kind of analysis of what's really yeah. happened. And we also have recommendations for what our society should do in the future to try to avoid a similar catastrophe again. 
so hopefully it'll be out on the shelves in about two months or so. So hopefully by mid-September or first of October is what we're hoping for. And uh, again, a great COVID birthday present for me, Gigi. My birthday is in <laughs> September. I shall be telling all my friends to buy it. So I have more Excellent. Excellent. twenty copies. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> All right, thank you as ever, Gigi. You've been absolutely fantastic. Brilliant answers to our questions. Thank really helpful much. to our students. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much, Rihanna. I appreciate it. Good luck. Nice well, that's it from Economic Central this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>